Thanks for tuning in to Doth Protest, a podcast on Reformation history and theology. And we're um, diverting a little bit on this episode like we have in past where we bring on a biblical scholar. Um, and by the way, before I go to that, sorry, uh, you would have heard new theme music for the show. And we have to thank Aaron Shaws, who um, helped with our hymns series when we talked about hymns of the of the Protestant, well, I guess the Christian tradition, uh, brother-in-law to frequent co-host James Rickenbaker. So thanks, Aaron. Um, it's a great, um, well, everyone would have heard it. I think fits the uh, podcast well. So, um, but anyways, thanks everyone for tuning in. And like I said, we are joined by a biblical scholar and he's a friend and colleague of mine and a fellow Episcopal priest, Frank Hughes. Uh, we actually both reside and serve in the Episcopal Diocese of Western Louisiana. So we've known each other for some time and um, we've discussed for some time uh, bringing you Frank on the show as well, because you are a biblical scholar and, you know, we don't. I think, you know, the only biblical scholar I think we have in the, the diocese. And so we have always had kind of cool uh discussions and stuff when we've seen each other at diocese and things but i'm glad to finally have you on sorry for the delay i know we talked about this months ago but i'm glad you're here well it's my pleasure and of course um you don't have to explain to me about being busy you know <laughs> uh we're both busy and uh, i'm busy in retirement uh i guess you would say semi-retirement in my case and of mm -hmm. course, you're you're the uh, rector of, um, you know, uh, a vital parish uh, in a, a good sized city here in the diocese. So uh, and I'm a priest in residence of a church across the street from Louisiana Tech University. So, you yeah. know, busy, busy. Yeah, Redeemer Church in Ruston. That's where, where uh, the Reverend Dr. Hughes uh, serves. And um as we were talking in our pre-show conversation uh, across the way from uh, the school, Louisiana Tech, where my uh, wife, Rachel, did her master's, so small world. And, it's, and, and I'll get a little bit into this. It's even a smaller world because we, Dr. Hughes and I have kind of uh, similar past stomping grounds. Um, Dr. Hughes has been ordained since 81, and he completed his PhD through Northwestern University. He was actually a joint Religious Studies Program of Northwestern University in Garrett Theological Seminary. This is in Evanston, um, Illinois, and um, he studied under Robert Jewett, who's a lifelong colleague of Frank's, the late Robert Jewett, and uh, we will be discussing, what we will be discussing today was actually a joint work between the, the two of them, though I, I know, well, I think Frank did a little more than he did, but they both had a part in it, and he'll explain that in a little bit. Uh, Frank holds degrees from also from University of Chicago and Seabury Western Theological Seminary. Um, 
He has taught courses on the New Testament at several institutions, uh, including, is it Codrington College? How do you pronounce that name? Yes, Codrington College. And that's in Barbados, and you were senior lecturer there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and um, I'm sorry? Yes, uh, I was senior lecturer there, and uh, during that time, I was also an appointed missionary of the Episcopal Church. Hmm. Okay. Um, so I was I was there six and a half years teaching. A probably cool experience um, doing something international. And um, so, uh, and of course, Dr. Hughes has authored a book titled Early Christian Rhetoric in Second Thessalonians, and he's co-authored with, with Robert Jewett a recent book, The Corinthian Correspondence, um, Redaction, Rhetoric, and History. Um, well, like I said, we have similar past stomping grounds between you and I. Um, you trained for ordained ministry through Seabury Western. I, a generation later, went through Bexley Seabury. I guess it's technically Bexley Seabury Western. And of course, that was, um, it's even different now than when I was there because it was actually, uh, I was in the, the residential, they had a residential full-time program still. Um, and in my last year of seminary, um, they relocated back to Chicago. Um, and so I spent my last year doing studies in Chicago, and I did a couple of classes at Garrett, um, including a New Testament course under Charlie Cosgrove. And I know you and I, uh, you and I have talked about this too before, but um, kind of more so for the listeners. And I don't, um, I, I, you may, you probably know Charlie. I imagine you. Um, and so, yeah, and, I, I saw him. I saw him at the SBL meeting at the Garrett reception uh, on, I think it was Saturday night. Okay. And uh, yeah, he was there, and uh, uh, another retired New Testament colleague was there, and uh, uh, the new, um, the um, the new, uh, the newest New Testament person, Jung uh, um, Jung, I believe is his name. He's, he is a Korean, mm -hmm. and uh, he he has just completed a book on Mark. Okay. And so, so. So it was good, of course. You know, I finished the PhD in 1984, and uh, Bob Jewett uh, taught there from 1980 to 2000. So you know, we're um, we're of a really a different generation, <laughs> yeah. yeah, than the current yeah. faculty and the current students. And uh, but, yeah, um, anyway, and, yeah. I mean, in Dr. Cosgrove, um, I took. I, in fact, what I took with him was a seminar on, um, uh, it was a Pauline studies course on, um, oh, what was it? Well, we, it was interesting. We used the David Harrell's, Horrell Harrell's book on, um, and I can't think of the title, but I'll, I'll put it in the show notes, but it's a, it was a Pauline ethics class. That's what we, we looked, looked at some Vic, v, VB furnish and, um, David Harrell was very interesting. Um, but, you know, uh, and, and I'm curious because because so, you know, some people go to college, some people get master's degrees, some people get doctorates. And I'm curious to get a little to get a little bio, um, uh, just to, not so much bio, but it's more about your of a, what sparked your personal interest. I'm, I'm interested in hearing from you, Frank. And I like to ask guests this, you know, what what got you into what you're into? Uh, what what got you interested in biblical studies to the point of where you, you know, wanted to pursue it uh, as pursue it as a doctoral uh, as in a doctoral program well i think when i went to college at hendrix 
you know, uh, and majored in religion. Um, and in the 70s, you know, people who were going to go to seminary were not necessarily, um, it, it wasn't necessarily recommended that we major in religion or re it wasn't usually called religious studies then, but it was religion. And, um, but uh, I sort of fell in love with the Bible. Um, and of course, I grew up uh, Southern Presbyterian in Texarkana. And then I started taking organ lessons at St. James in Texarkana. And uh, I sort of grew, I fell in love with liturgy and the Episcopal Church. So um, I, so I think those are my passions, biblical studies um, and um, the church. Mm -hmm. and, ch and church music is um, not far away in third position, I guess. Yeah, I didn't know you played organ. I get to learn something new about someone I've known. <laughs> so. I did. I did. I did. I used to play at Codrington. Okay. And um, so, and uh, so you got again two Louisiana Episcopal priests uh, with, who did schooling in Chicago. And so, and we're both here today. So uh, today's discussion may be interesting. Uh, and, and uh, you know, it, it's apparent, I think, Frank, you and I may have perhaps have had our differences on how we approach some things on the theological level. And and also there is, I think, listeners will pick up on it. Sort of, there's this kind of differences between the ways, maybe the methods, I don't know, that a, someone like me who's studying like systematic and historical theology uh, versus a, a biblical study scholar, how they kind of go about things. Um, yeah, there's been lots of talk about, you know, bridging that gap over the years, I suppose. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, perhaps some different takeaways uh, and and perhaps some different implications that we may reach on issues surrounding the formation of Scripture on one hand and how we treat it as canon in the church on the other. But but you and I, in some of our conversations in the past, you've, de you've described yourself, I think, as an unapologetic uh, historical critic. And um, I've I kind of consider myself more a post critic uh and i know that's a term to really break down but i don't know maybe in the style of brevard childs or kate zondreger or i don't know joseph ratzinger or something you know i don't i don't think it's good to return to a pre-critical age necessarily um but you know so but I, I i you and i would both find that dishonest but i think we perhaps differ from each other on how uh historical criticism uh in what ways it does benefit versus not the church. And, and maybe we'll get into that later, but I'm just, I'm just kind of putting that up front. So it doesn't seem like, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to hit you with uh what's the term sideballs or, you know, uh, blindside you with, but, I, but we'll have some kind of pointed questions because this book is um, uh, it's, it's, it takes on a lot. And I know it takes on a lot because it's many, many years in the making. It's not like this was written on a whim. <laughs> so, yes. so I think you're right. Uh, you know, I think you are a systematic theologian and uh, and I think to a great extent, a historical theologian, uh, particularly with affinities to the Reformation. And uh, and uh, I'm uh, I believe my usual my usual self-description is that I'm an un, unrepentant, unreconstructed historical critic. Oh, there, unrepentant, um, unre that was it. I, unrepentant, yeah. unreconstructed. That's right, uh, unrepentant. I, uh, yeah, uh, I, that's the word. Um, and uh, so. Unapologetic, well, too. Unapologetic. 
So those are our disclaimers. Um, but, and that all that said, though, I'm not the biblical scholar. So you're the expert here on what we're talking about. Um, so I think we'll have an interesting conversation. And the book we are discussing today, not that we have a video, um, not that this podcast is audio only, but I'm holding the book up on screen that Frank and I are at least seeing. Uh, it is the Corinthian Correspondence, Redaction, Rhetoric, and History, authored by Frank W. Hughes and Robert Jewett. And just looking through it, um, this is, like I said, a, a significant book, well, a significant contribution to biblical scholarship in the area of Corinthian uh, correspondence. But uh, there, I guess we'll, it's probably best to define the terms before we go further. Um, I have two two terms that I wanted you to kind of break down for us, um, Frank. Uh, redaction criticism, and they're related. You got redaction criticism and you got partition theory. Just kind of in general, in how they those two things relate to biblical studies, maybe not specifically Corinthians yet, but just to the Bible in general, what are the, the redaction criticism partition theory? Could you kind of explain each what each of those are? Yes. Well, redaction criticism uh, is the study of how biblical texts, you know, we believe that there was a more of an original type text. And then probably in the late first, if not the early second century, uh, we are arguing that uh, the original eight Corinthian letters, and we don't have all of them. We have some of them are full letters and some of them are letter fragments. And we think that that editing took place uh, in the no earlier than the late first century. And of course, we don't usually use the term redaction criticism in the Pauline corpus. And of course the term Pauline corpus, uh, lest anyone think otherwise, we use the term Pauline corpus uh, as a neutral term to mean all 14 letters that either are written by Paul or were attributed to Paul plus Hebrew. Um, but anyway, um, we normally use redaction criticism when we think of, for example, uh, how uh, Matt, if you believe in Mark and priority, how Matthew and Luke, or, or the final editors of Matthew and Luke, redacted the gospel according to Mark. And so, you know, you look in the synopsis of the four gospels or of the three gospels, and you look at Mark in the middle, and then you look at how things were changed in the Matthew column and out in the Lucan column, but especially in the Matthew column. And so when you do that, and you look at, and you can see patterns of the way that Mark was used, and Mark certainly was the skeleton of Matthew um, and Luke, uh, when you look at that and then you kind of get a consistent pattern of the way the editing of Mark was done in the Gospel of Matthew, then you can actually get a sense of what the point of view of Matthew was. Uh, and of course, we know about this particularly with Luke um, in the famous book by Hans Konzelman, The Theology of St. Luke which was uh, redaction critical, uh, redactional, re that was a redactional, redaction critical study of Luke and Acts. Uh, Georg Strecker's book on Matthew, Der Weg der Gerechtigkeit, was a redactional study of Matthew. Uh, and of course, we also know that uh, uh, Matthew and Luke had other sources and 
Mark may have had sources too, pre-marketers. But when you can kind of, it's great when you can identify the sources like, you know, Mark being a source for Matthew and Luke, you can identify that. Uh, when you are not quite as certain of uh, Matthew, uh, of uh, redaction taking place, that is a more difficult thing to argue. And that is the path that we have chosen in our Corinthian book. And Bob Jewett wrote an article that was published in the Journal of the American Academy of Religion Supplement Series in 1978, called The Redaction of First Corinthians and the Trajectory of the Pauline School. And that was published in 1978, in which he specifically and explicitly did redaction criticism of, uh, of First Corinthians and argued from, you know, there were original Corinthian letters and then they were rejected. So when you when you think that there are different letters embedded in first or second Corinthians, then in order to figure out, in order to find those letters, then you make a division, for example, between, you know, second uh, Corinthians 10 through 13 versus the rest of first of second Corinthians. We call that a partition. And so when you start dividing up the the traditional form of first and second Corinthian, we refer to that as a partition theory. So kind of in layman's terms, so you could you could kind of see it as different parts being weaved together for whatever purpose, whatever motive, but we'll get into that, whatever, you know, what kind of motives may be been behind that. Um, but kind of like I yes, said, kind of in, in in layman's terms, speaking for myself, who, you know, on the MDiv letter, MDiv level did some like biblical studies and new testament classes i am definitely used to like you said the the topic of redaction coming up in case of the gospels um uh and that would only make sense i mean even setting aside like um uh the the, the um two source hypothesis or what i just even like someone's not sitting next to uh jesus writing everything from beginning to end no they, these are people with doing doing theological reflection and they ha and they're having to force themselves to pick and choose how to present the whatever life and message of Jesus they're, so they're I, I they're doing editing they're piecing stuff together but I'm not used to um so this is why the episode will be interesting not used to seeing that so much in the context of uh like a Pauline letter where I mean uh for the most part, we would think Paul just wrote a letter from beginning to end, and in some cases of his letters, um, uh, you would judge that he did, but not with not with uh, Corinthians. So, um, and it leads me to my next um, question. Um, in particular, out of all the Paul's letters, or at least out of all what the consensus of modern scholarship deems as the um, authentic letters from Paul, that being uh, Romans, Galatians, First and Second Corinthians, First Thessalonians, Philippians, and Philemon. It is definitely Second Corinthians oh. that has often been considered to be the product of redaction, or at least the product of a much heavier redaction uh, than redaction that may have been received in some of those other letters I mentioned. So, um, I guess if if you know if you think about modern day, we sit down to write a letter, we we start then finish. Uh, we're we're writing on <laughs> we can maybe get into the materials of we're writing on something different than what they would have in the ancient days, but we compose something from beginning to end. And while this isn't um, uh, 
like I said, this isn't the same thing as an ancient epistle. Some of those other letters I just mentioned from Paul um, was him sitting down, perhaps from more or less from beginning to end, but not so as Second Corinthians. And as you and Jewett feel, perhaps somewhat, I don't, maybe a little bit provocatively, not so much either with First Corinthians. So I'm interested in some of, before we get into you and Jewett, I'm interested in some of the history of the theories about Second Corinthians, like from modern scholarship, which largely sees it as Second Corinthians as 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 being partitioned. Um, you mentioned in your book uh, as a Gunther and of the umlaut over the Gunther Bornkem, who thought Second Corinthians is the product of what was originally five letters or sources. Um, I guess why is the Bornkem? Right. Why did why did he think that? Well. Um, a lot of people thought that before Borncom. Um, and people, and uh, for First Corinthians, a lot of people, a number of people thought that First Corinthians had had other letters, you know, embedded in it before Johannes Weiss. But see, Johannes Weiss, um, who was the teacher of Rudolf Bultmann, um, he wrote the the Meyer commentary on First Corinthians became the classic in and it was published in 1910 and i believe it's still in print well borncom's article die vorgeschichte der zweiten der excuse me the vorgeschichte der sogenannten zweiten Korinther brief the history of the so-called letter second letter to the corinthians he um pointed out a number of things and brought a whole bunch of things together uh he pointed out that uh you know the letters that we have in the New Testament that we do not doubt their Pauline authorship, they were all quoted in the first letter of Clement in about 95 or 96 E. Um, all the seven letters that we think are authentic Pauline letters minus Second Corinthians plus Hebrews are all specifically quoted by uh, Clement in the first letter of Clement, which was a, um, which was a, shall we say, a corrective letter uh, from the Corinthian church, from the Roman church to the Corinthian church, who had thrown out their priests. And the bishop of Rome heard about it, and the church at Rome wrote this, I mean, Clement wrote it, and they based, he wrote a letter, and if you think Paul ever wrote severe letters, first Clement, you know, magnify that by four or five. Mm. And you'll get first Clement. And uh, I admire that letter very much. But uh, in any event, uh, he basically says, what you did, you can't do. And he quotes the Old Testament. And he, you know, people who oppose people in the Old Testament are opposing God. And they're pretty much the same as the devil and, mm. you know, <laughs> things of that nature. Well, first Clement did not quote second Corinthians, but it did quote first Corinthians didn't quote all of it by the way so uh Horncom argued in that article which was first in german and a english summary was published in new testament studies in the 60s that uh that um it was the so-called second letter he argued that um when you actually look at Second Corinthians, you've actually got some pieces that are not likely to fit together in the same letter. For example, one one 
the very beginning of first, excuse me, second Corinthians through 2.13 is about reconciliation. And then, as we know from form criticism of letters, a Thanksgiving prayer is pretty much how you introduce a letter, right? This is where the vital theme of the letter is stated, mm -hmm. all about Paul Schubert's stuff on form criticism of letters from 1939. And so 2.13, excuse me, 2.14 through uh, 6.13 is a different letter, apparently, where Paul is defending himself. And then there is the most difficult section of all, and that's Second Corinthians six fourteen through seven one, which not everyone is even sure that it's even written by Paul, uh, where it's go apart and be separate, and it, it's quite a different tone is different, the subjects are different, and then in seven five through the end of chapter seven, and possibly including chapter eight. The letter that began in 1 1 seems to conclude. Uh, and if you connect 2 13 with 7 5, it just connects perfectly. And in Larry Wellborn's article, he says they fit together like the broken pieces of a ring. Hmm. Uh, and of course, that was said in his article in New Testament Studies, L.L. Wellborn, and it was republished, reprinted in his book, Politics and Rhetoric in the Corinthian Letter. So basically, in 2 Corinthians, you're talking about reconciliation in 1, 1 through 2, 13, and 7, 5 through the end of chapter 7. But then in chapter 8, you got a fundraising letter. And then in chapter 9, you got a different fundraising letter, okay? And then, amazingly, uh, most amazing of all, in chapters 10 through 13 of 2 Corinthians, you have Paul writing a sarcastic, bombastic letter to more or less smack them between the eyes. Um, and uh, um, which just cannot make a lot of sense, in, as we believe, in the same letter as 1 1 through 2 13 and 7 5 through 6. Which is about reconciliation. And in that letter, the very beginning of 2 Corinthians, in 2 4, Paul says, I wrote you out of much anguish of heart and with many tears. And then as he goes on, that's in 2 4. And then as he goes on in chapter 2, and then in the piece of it in chapter 7, seven verse, chapter 7, verse 5 and following, you have also the description, Paul's description of the massive. And dramatic response that this letter that he wrote out of much anguish of heart and many tears got when it was when it was read and received in the Corinthian church and caused the Corinthian church to turn around, which they needed to do. And so many people, including Bob Jewett and me, believe that the letter of tears mentioned in two chapter two, verse four, is the same as chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13. And so if 10 through 13 are, if those chapters are not the letter of tears mentioned in 2.4, then the letter of tears is lost. So the deal is in 2 Corinthians, you're looking at ex rather extremely different situations reflected in the different pieces 
of Second Corinthians. Not so much a different theology, um, although there is a lot of theology in Second Corinthians, if you know where to look for it, particularly chapters four and five mm. uh, of Second Corinthians, you know, like Second Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Been years unpacking that one. And so there's lots of theology, but you have to know where to look for. Uh, because in letter E, which is chapter 2, verse 14 through 613, and then 7, 2 through 4, um, you have Paul essentially saying, um, Paul, for the first time, Paul defends himself, that letter, letter E. And uh, he defends himself, and he talks about what uh, apostolic ministry and ministry really is, rather than, rather than having beautiful, rippling body and being able to do magic or being able to impress people. Uh, Paul says, uh, basically, it's just, you know... It, we are human beings, and uh, we don't quit being human beings when we become apostles. Um, and so Paul talks about, uh, and of course, in letter F, 10 through 13, Paul talks about his, um, Paul talks about his weakness. And of course, in 10 through 13, the nasty letter, letter F, um, in 1010, he says, they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his appearance is an appearance of weakness, and his logos, his oral rhetoric, just really stinks beneath discussion. Hmm. And basically, Paul accepts the idea, that the, the charge that he's weak, and it culminates in the foolish discourse where Paul is, Paul brags of his weakness. Um, and then, of course, the culmination of the foolish discourse is where Paul had the thorn in the flesh given to him, whatever that was, and he asked God to take away the thorn in the flesh three times. And God's answer to that was, well, you know what? I'm not going to take away the thorn in the flesh. Um, my grace is sufficient for you. By the way, one of the charges against Paul is... Paul is not Hikonauts competent. Then when God speaks at the end of the nasty letter, God says, my grace is Hikonauts for you, for my power is made perfect and weak, which is what the Corinthian opponents of Paul have said characterizes Paul's ministry. So Paul says, you say I'm weak. Paul says, yeah, I am weak. And that's how God wants it. Yeah. Well, so think, it's a very defiant letter. Yeah. Well, it's a very, a defining, very defiant letter. I think the theology of that, though, is, has been very uh, influential on, well, the Reformation tradition, I guess, the Luther's theology of the cross as opposed to a theology of glory really traces back to uh, Paul's statements with that. Um, and, but, and, you know, and, and on the note of theology, you know, you know I alluded to me, me being the theology student, talking with a biblical scholar here. Um, I mean, I don't, I guess I'm not, wouldn't find it um, theologically inconsistent to accept something as partitioned, especially if it's written by the same person. Obviously, we 
our our theology our worldviews we 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 change as we you know we were always developing in our thought but it, it seems to me um be it if it, what was the opposite of a partition letter if it's integral that's like if it's written how it's presented is how how it's, it was written. if it's all one letter we refer to that as an integral letter integral so uh in, integral or partitioned um i think uh second corinthians is either way very theologically inform uh informative for us um but so i guess um, you talked about kind of like the rough transitions that that you and and, and dr jewett definitely um notice in second corinthians um i guess my other question this would be getting ahead into first corinthians um you and jewett see in a similar situation as second corinthians that the the character of how it's presented looks like a partition letter the product of reduction as well and, and you say in the book on page 43 that actually quote um I put it on my screen, recent scholars are far less inclined to recognize the transitional problems in 1 Corinthians, unquote, uh, even though you and Jude. Boy, is that boy is that true? <laughs> well, that made me that curious because I was like, what's, what's... That is very true. Well, what's behind that recent trend of not seeing the same issues in 1 Corinthians? That, like, And curiously, uh, who are some of these scholars? What's their reasoning for not seeing the same issues with 1 Corinthians that that you do, um, uh, I guess would be. Well, the, a lot of, well, basically the great commentary on first Corinthians was the one by the great Johannes Weitz. His famous student was Rudolf Bultmann. His famous conservative student was Gunter Bornkamp and Bornkamp's student was Dieter Georgi. Um, but anyway, um, Johannes uh, Weiss's commentary divided up First Corinthians. It was a commentary on First Corinthians, and it divided up into several into several letters. And um, recently, um, a, a brilliant scholar uh, and teacher at the University of Chicago, Professor and her dean Margaret Mitchell, uh, and a former president of of SNTS, the Elite New Testament Group globally um she wrote a dissertation uh called paul and the rhetoric of reconciliation and it was published uh in germany and published also in uh it was co-published in in by westminster press westminster john knox press in which she made a very um very influential case for the integral character of first corinthians uh, which we don't agree with. Um, but in any event, uh, she made the case that it's all one letter. Uh, and then my my good friend Raymond Collins uh, wrote a commentary in the Sacropagina series, arguing also that 1 Corinthians is all one integral letter, uh, even including uh, the what many people think is an interpolation in 1433b through 36. That's the woman be being silent. silent. Yes, yeah. women got to be silent in church. And mm -hmm. if they want to know anything, ask their husbands at home. And um, we don't think that that is by Paul. And many many scholars who do not otherwise partition 1 Corinthians accept that as, as an interpolation. The one exception. <laughs> 
as the one exception. And um, and uh, Margaret didn't, and uh, Ra- Father Raymond Collins didn't. Wow. And uh, and others don't too. And uh, we think we think that that they are being a little bit too innocent. Uh, because if you look at our chapter three, it's Bob Jewett's chapter three. Um, we show Bob Jewett showed um, the uh, rough transitions in. We found more rough transitions uh, in First Corinthians than we found in Second Corinthians, and he goes, he lists them one through seventeen. He says where they are. He gives a translation, and then he um, and then he uh, says, "Okay, here's why we think this is a rough transition." And the rough transition means before it and after it, a different a different situation seems to be presupposed. And so that's what he did in and I think I must let chapter three speak for itself because that is perhaps most well that and my chapters five and uh, seven through 12 that's the most original part of our um uh because what he showed is okay if you want to say there's a if you want to say i want to partition this letter in the new testament then you ought to say why right you should put your cards on the table and say why you would like to partition it and table some people think I am too, but I'm not near as famous as Bob. Um, well, so he put his cards right at work. And he actually came to live with me for several months while I was ministering at the, at, uh, not the one I serve now, but he actually lived. He And we, for months, uh, I didn't eat lunch with him, but boy, we ate breakfast and dinner with him. And uh, we discussed Corinthians until we were both blue in the face um, and changed our minds about a couple of things. Uh, and he lived with me for a while while I was in Monroe. Uh, and uh, and then while I was in the, that other church in Minden, I actually taught, I think it was, it was on Thursday nights, we actually together taught Corinthians. And we had quite a few people from town. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... We basically taught it uh, to parishioners from the church I was serving, as well as other parishioners in other in other churches nearby. Uh, and of course, when I came back from Barbados and I started doing interims, I really believe in adult Christian ed. You know, I don't believe this business of you don't need any Christian education. You know, after you're confirmed, and you know, we confirm kids too early at age twelve. All that foolishness. And uh, I don't believe that Christian formation is supposed to end when you're confirmed. And of course, the Episcopal Church agrees with that as of 2009, 2012, and 2015. We agree in life with lifelong Christian formation. Mm-hmm. And so I started teaching it. And so I taught it at Holy Cross in Shreveport. Uh, I taught down in New Orleans. I did a short interim in New Orleans. Then I came back and I did uh, an interim at Grace Monroe, and then I was elected rector in Minden, and I taught it. Bob Jewett and I taught it there, uh, and then I taught it at some other churches too. Uh, and of course, that was the first set of. I taught it in Nacogdoches when I went. Uh, was over in Texas. 
I taught it in Longview when I was over in Texas, and then I taught it here in Ruston. So I've taught through the Corinthian correspondence multiple times, and I taught it to my graduate students twice when I was at Codrington. But nonetheless, um, what Bob did in that chapter three is to say, okay, here are here are rough transitions numbers one through 17. And here is why we think they are rough transitions. Mm -hmm. So people can read them for themselves and they can see what he wrote about them being rough transitions and they can decide whether we're right or not. And of course, yeah. the rough, the roughest transition of all uh, with 1 Corinthians is 1 Corinthians 11. Because in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 18 and 19, Paul says, well, I've heard that there are divisions among you, and I partly believe it. That's verse 18. And then in verse 19, he goes on and says, well, it's necessary that there be divisions because that's how you tell who the genuine people are. See? Um, so in chapters one through four of this thing called First Corinthians, Paul has been raking them over the coals at some length, at some length about disunity and how bad disunity is because he's gotten the detailed report from Chloe's people that he recounts in 110 and following the, the factions. I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Christ. And my God was, I wasn't crucified for you, you know? And then, so he's raking over the coals big time in the first four chapters about their disunity. And then in chapter 11, he says, well, it's not so bad. <laughs> and so uh, everyone who partitions 1 Corinthians wants to, generally wants to put 1 Corinthians 11 first because it reflects a situation in which Paul has heard that there are divisions, but he's unwilling to believe it. I partly believe it. I believe it in part. By the time Paul writes first, the beginning of 1 Corinthians and has had the detailed report from Chloe's people, obviously he believes that 100%. Then uh, there is the business of 1 Corinthians 13, which recapitulates chapters um, 12, but it also recapitulates chapter 14. Chapter 12 is about spiritual gifts, and then it's interrupted by 13, and then 14 is about spiritual gifts. But if you reverse 14 and 13, then you have 12 and 14 being about spiritual gifts, which the Corinthians say they have, right? And then 1 Corinthians 13 recapitulates everything that is in Corinthian letter C, not the parts of 1 Corinthians that are not in C. Mm. So the, the uh, pattern of a rhetorical speech as modified for letters helps to confirm the analysis of letter C, which was the frame letter of First Corinthians. Because when you just have letter C, you have a wonderful three-part proof. Uh, and then you have, that's what Paul says first. In other words, you're basically completely wrong about spiritual gifts. Uh, and then in chapter seven and in chapter eight, he says, now considering 
now about the things that you wrote me about. See, they've written Paul a letter. Mm -hmm. In their letter, they talked about how rich they were with the gifts of the Holy Spirit and how filled they were. And of course, he finally gets to that in 4.8. You are filled, you are rich, you're kings. So eventually he gets to the thing after chapter 7 and 8. Then, then he gets to the things. Previously, he talks about the things he wanted to talk about. In chapter 7 and 8, he talks about the things they ask him about, about marriage and virginity and slavery and things mm -hmm. like that. And also meat that was that was to be eaten, but had probably been in the pagan market mm -hmm. and therefore used in pagan worship. Um, and so... You still there, Frank? You cut out for a moment. Well... Chapter 14, and then the whole thing of letter C is recapitulated in chapter 13. So, so that I, is letter C. That, that is the frame letter of First Corinthians. So uh, we, I think we missed some patches of the last maybe 30 seconds of what you were saying, um, just because we had some uh, connection issues, I think. Um, but uh, but again, I'll refer people, of course, to the chapter 3 you said that explains what you said were 17 rough transitions that uh, I think Bob Jewett uh, pointed out in first Corinthians. So I guess, and again, I'm, I'm a layman in the, the field of biblical studies, but I'm kind of just thinking out loud, knowing that um, while the consensus for second Corinthians may be definitely that is our partition letter, um, but not so much with the first, I'm just, again, kind of as a layman uh, thinking out loud, you know what for a letter like first corinthians i could see plausibly that um for one paul might just be wanting to address a variety of topics that came up um i know you mentioned how in earlier parts he's he's fuming mad about there being very apparent blatant disunity and then it kind of shifts where he mentions where disunity is not necessarily a bad thing and I'm, I'm just trying to think like me i could see myself pastorally dealing with something where i can see why there would be division trying to affirm that like i get why there's disagreement but then but wanting to be very firm about you know that uh it's escalated to a point and i get I, I don't know it just for me i'm not um i i, I could see yeah. i guess trying to be devil's advocate i, I could see where some parts may seem choppy or may not logically work out, but um, I, I know there's, uh, I think I had read, um, it's vaguely remembering had the scholar Hans Lietzman, who um, I think he made an argument uh, of first Corinthians being integral by, by saying, you know, it's, it may be dis it does seem disjointed to a modern reader, but for someone who is, I guess, intimately involved in the situation that occasioned the letter, uh, it it wouldn't have been. Um, I'm kind of just vaguely remembering what he said, but that'd be kind of be my. What you're suggesting, yeah. What you're suggesting has been been that has been the counter to any partition theories, and so yeah, you could hold up, you could. Uh, you could uh, you could hold a, a convention of people who uh, partitioned First Corinthians, and you could hold it in your office, your inner office. I'm sure. <laughs> so we are very much we are very much in the minority. Uh, but again, um, as a rhetorical critic, and Bob Jewett as a rhetorical critic, would it ever really be to Paul's advantage rhetorically 
to tell them, okay, divisions are no damn good. It's a terrible thing for the body of, I mean, and also the business in 1 Corinthians 12 is the body of Christ. That's a plea for unity. Mm -hmm. You know, the analogy of the body of Christ, the church is the body of Christ, and it's one body, it's got a bunch of different parts, but it's fundamentally one body, and therefore you shouldn't, uh, one part shouldn't try to cut off some other body part. Um, would it ever be to Paul's rhetorical advantage, given the fact that he can't be there in person, would it be, ever be to his rhetorical advantage to say things like unity is the main thing, and certainly in chapter 12, unity is almost the only thing. And then to have chapter 11 of the same letter saying, well, disunity ain't so bad. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we don't know exactly what happened. As historians of this literature, this, these writings, we have to reconstruct what happened, and we reconstruct it according to probabilities. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't have a tape recording. We don't have tape recordings of Paul. Right. And we also don't have, we also don't have original autographs of Paul. Um, we don't have any copies of Pauline letters until P46, which is usually dated around 200 CE. Mm -hmm. So we think that there was plenty of time for editing to take place given the fact that other Pauline letters were being constructed, written, like Ephesians, possibly like Colossians. Uh, and as I argued in my dissertation, which Bob Jewett disagreed with, Second Thessalonians, in the late first century period, could be second century. Um, you know, they're writing new Pauline letters. And so... What makes you think that they wouldn't have edited uh, already already written um, online letters? Yeah, I of course, um, if, you, if if you have people saying, "Okay, Paul could have said this," and then in chapter eleven he could say something different, but then he gets back to unity in chapters twelve and fourteen about spiritual gifts and the body of Christ. And Bob and I think. Bob said a lot about this, that that contributes to the idea of Paul being one of these really, really crusty people who could say one thing and then say something rather completely different. And so that contributes to the crusty image of Paul. And when you look at 1 Thessalonians, which is one beautiful integral letter, when you look at Romans, which is a beautiful integral letter with the of Romans 16, 17. And when you look at Galatians, a, a marvelous and powerful integral letter, all three of these letters being highly theological too, um, you see letters that flow and have a, a thematic and rhetorical unity, which mm -hmm. rhetorical critics have uncovered. Uh, Hans Dieter Betz in his commentary on Galatians Bob Jewett in his commentary on Romans, uh, myself in my article on 1 Thessalonians. When you look at letters that are undoubtedly integral letters, and you see how well and how consistently they flow, and then you look at what Paul seems to be doing in 1 Corinthians, and how he seems rather completely to change his mind in chapter 11, 
then when you get to chapter 12, he's talking about unity again, then you have to say, what is the most likely historical explanation of the text we have? Yeah, I get, I mean, part of me thinks, well, well, one part of me, and I'm not trying to like a smart alky answer, but like the, didn't the redactor catch that Paul's being inconsistent, you know, if we're going to, if we're going to put it, piece it together this way, um, I mean, surely they, uh, and who knows? I mean, I, I'm like, again, I'm not, I, I suppose very well, especially with second Corinthians, I definitely see a compelling case for for me for it being partitioned um but i guess i'm 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 curious to to and we can get into rhetoric in a moment but like when when you when we say things like rough transitions and smooth transit when we when we define like you mentioned flow a moment ago um you know noticing the flow of uh, especially of an of what we've classified and deemed an integral letter versus what we've not deemed as an integral letter and seeing seeing choppiness i wonder though are we putting again layman thinking out loud are we putting an expectation on paul to always uh have a certain literary quality when he's writing or uh is he allowed to to you know come off as as roughly moving from one thing to the other so those are honest questions i have two and i don't you know which lead me to I, I don't know not to not to not to know what side to really choose with some of these questions that you do raise in the book, but um, but I don't know. I don't know if you had anything in chapter in chapter four. That's where Bob talks about the redaction of First Corinthians and how it was and how First Corinthians was put together. Mm-hmm. And then in in appendix two of the book, you have charts. So they started out as Bob Jewett charts, and then Neil Elliott converted them to pdfs for us he did a great job but chapter four is in other words chapter three is why we want to partition first corinthians chapter four is the partition and redaction of letter c to take it out of the hands of proto-gnostics in other words letter c as it stood said that some people got christian wisdom and other people do not have christian wisdom um chapters two and three particularly chapters the latter part of chapter one and chapter two of first corinthians some people have got spiritual wisdom the corinthians said they were spiritual right in their letter to him and uh so uh bob argued in his article in 1978 and in chapter four of our book that uh that it would have been very dangerous in the hands of early Gnostics or proto-Gnostics, not full-blown second-century Gnostics, but people who, um, they denigrated the body. This is letter B, too. You know, these are the people who don't believe in the resurrection. See? Mm-hmm. And so uh, the stuff about the latter part of chapter one and chapter two, talking about some people, spiritual things are only understandable and explainable to people who are spiritual. So there are some people who are spiritual who can understand Paul. And that would have been very dangerous. Uh, it in lends the itself. He lends itself to, yeah, the Gnostic uh, concept of. And so proto Gnostic, and we agree with Hans Konzelman there, not full blown Gnostics, proto Gnostics. So basically, we think that in order 
to take letter C out of the hands of proto-Gnostics, then the redactors put pieces of authentic Pauline letters in with letter C, and to, to blunt the force of it, so that you wouldn't get the idea that, okay, only spiritual people can understand Paul. Only spiritual people can understand spiritual things, which is what the Corinthians thought. Mm -hmm. uh, and something like that, Paul does argue at the beginning of chapter two of first Corinthians. That would have been like, that would have been like fire in the hands of proto-Gnostics. And so Bob argued um, in 1978 and, in, and also in our book, uh, and also in our book, um, that that was the reason for it. Mm -hmm. The book's rather fascinating. Uh, on one end, I think because a lot of work was put into it, both by you and Dr. Jewett. And there's a fun aspect, perhaps, because there's, um, a lot of it's investigative work um to and oh yes you know it's you're recovering and reassembling what could have very well been original the originals right uh, and that's an ambitious project and so i think based on that alone you know it warrants your book to receive attention and um your particular partition theory which i, I think builds on uh the partition theories and takes into account past ones, um, I think warrants, uh, you know, wider scholarly conversation. Um, and um, it needs to be referred to, I I think, uh, here on out going forward in the future with Pauline studies. Um, I encourage our listeners to check out the book and just and just really read the details more. Obviously, an hour long podcast can't get into it. But, you know, he, he describes letters A, letter B, letter, you know, it goes through H um and and what the the specific themes of those were and how according to him and dr jewett's theory um they're they're re reworked into what we see in first and second both first and second corinthians so um now one of the things i did one of the things i said and this isn't just in your book alone um it's in other um it's in other critical studies i guess uh that i've struggled with uh was um involved the method of the rhetorical categories. Uh, I, and I think I mentioned this to you, Frank, a year or so ago, and, and I know you don't like this, this person, this, this scholars, at least his book, his work. I was reading uh, Luke Timothy Johnson, um, you know, the Catholic uh, conservative biblical scholar, uh, though he's not conservative. Yeah, he's he's uh, not conservative on everything. I know he's progressive on like uh, LGBT. Well, that's right. But, that's but, you right. Know, yes, yes, sir conservative in the sense of uh he's not uh pushes back against critical scholars on certain aspects um johnson's book uh his first volume of the two-part constructing paul where uh he he warned against what he referred to as seeing paul as if uh paul mechanically arranged letters according to letter writing conventions that involve the different rhetorical categories um he uh he thinks some certain scholars have taken that a little bit too far. And he actually cites Hans Dieter Betts as one of them. And then um, I've also run into. Oh, I would, uh, I would be another. He would say that about me. I'm sure. Well, and, and, and Donald Hall also, um, and he write, and in many ways, his book, uh, he, he wrote a work that's probably my very much a nemesis to, because <laughs> he argues for the, uh, for a sense, second Corinthians, both being integral, but he, he too thinks, um, he 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 too thinks that just in just as in how pre-critical 
exegesis would try to find a Catholic Paul versus a Protestant Paul. He thinks a lot of uh, critical exegesis, especially in the uh, rhetorical criticism, tries to kind of impose categories that may not always fit. And so I've always kind of, I mean, what would you make of those critiques of bets? Um, and he and he too, Donald Hall, and I'll put a show note in the for our listeners what book I'm referring to. Yeah, we've been hearing, rhetorical critics have been hearing this for about 30 years, if not more. Mm-hmm. And so the real deal is we have never said that Paul ever saw a rhetorical handbook. Mm-hmm. Um, but we think that rhetorical instruction uh, was a pervasive part of the regular, uh, in other words, you, you studied grammar, you studied rhetoric, and then mm-hmm. a few people studied philosophy. And so people that went to school would have studied grammar first. And uh, Quintilian wants them to be taught grammar the right way. And of course, Quintilian in the late first century was the greatest Latin teacher of rhetoric. And so um, we think that rhetorical uh, rhetorical uh, instruction was so pervasive that even without thinking of, my God, this is the exordium, well, I've got to put in a narratio now. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would have been able to know, okay, this is how you would put a speech together. And then to some, to a great extent, that was modified in letters. For example, speeches don't usually have an exhortation at the end, whereas letters do. Mm-hmm. So there are differences between speeches and letters, as we have always said. We've been accused of not recognizing those differences. That really isn't true. Um, we have recognized the differences and we see them, we see that as a modification of some of the traditions of rhetoric. And of course, there's something like that in Cicero's De Oratore, book three, paragraph 125, that says, uh, somebody asks. The fact that you remembered all that off the top of your head is, uh, Yes. That's very specific. Well, anyway, some basically De Oratore has all of Cicero's rhetorical heroes. They didn't all live together at the same time. But anyway, they have a dialogue or a discussion about how how to train the orator in the best way. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions is, well, what happens? uh, What happens if it's not, you know, uh, a funeral speech or a ceremonial speech or it's not before the Senate or the council? Uh, or you're not in court. In other words, those are the three genera of rhetoric, you know, epideictic, deliberative, and judicial rhetoric. And then Cicero says, well, a ready orator who knows rhetoric will, doesn't need a new genus of rhetoric. You would know what to do uh, based on the situation. And he suggests that if what would happen if the Senate needed to write a letter and so Cicero suggests in or De Oratory 3, 125, that a mandatum from the Senate could indeed have rhetorical character, including, which would include rhetorical. We also know a lot about rhetorical theory, um, invention, or the use of topics, perhaps, arrangement, in other words, the, the, how you put a speech together, and style, the smaller bits and pieces of style 
had to do with written rhetoric. Mm -hmm. And then memory and delivery had to do with oral rhetoric. And we know that those were very well taught and very well learned in rhetorical school. So, I, so we, and I mean, we I think, think that that was a very that was a very pervasive part of education. In well, and I, I mean that that's fair. I mean, I think it's plausible. I mean, it's um, you're you're saying that it's not even one does not even need to be conscious that they're employing what we would give these Latin terms to as far as um, rhetorical devices. That they're, they're just is this net because of ones it was in the air because it was, it was there was plenty of elements in someone's upbringing and education that it just naturally comes out when they do sit down to write or compose well they were latin terms but before cicero they were greek terms okay. cicero brought greek rhetorical instruction into latin okay. in a very young handbook that he refers to as well it slipped out of my notebooks unaware uh de invenzione um and uh, so already, already uh, Aristotle wrote a handbook of rhetoric, mm -hmm. um, of the art of rhetoric. It's first two, the first two books of it are very philosophical. And the third book of Aristotle's art of rhetoric is very much traditional instruction. Mm -hmm. um, so we think that that was well taught and well learned. And I think you have a copy the article that I wrote on first the rhetoric of first Thessalonians mm -hmm. uh, there there I show you I give a bunch of references and show how the rhetoric of that letter worked mm -hmm. now so is, I, I was how that, would Paul yeah that would, kind of looking at by Paul Paul's biographical um details how how would that have fit in uh, because there's a debate on whether he was a Roman citizen or not um but also, you know, what what was the typical for for someone with rabbinic training and education? That I mean, you're in a pretty Hellenistic environment, kind of no matter where you are. Is a person in that situation without having even having having to been a Roman, he's he's still exposed to, he's still brought up in that, correct? Or, in or well, training. Tarsus, Tarsus is well known because seven very fa seven famous Stoic philosophers. Their hometown was Tarsus, yeah. and it was a considered a it was considered a, a, a like a college town for philosophy, particularly Stoic philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, Paul, in terms of rabbinic training, that's something that's in the Book of Acts, and um, one uh, looks in vain for that in the Pauline letters. Um, so, if it's not in if it's not in the authentic Pauline letters. Um, or in any Pauline letter that Paul has this rabbinic training with Gamaliel and all that. Um, uh, the idea that Paul had this rabbinic training is a secondary idea. In other words, Acts is secondary, is a secondary source. Whereas the primary source for Paul are his authentic letters. And so I don't find anything that's um, unabashedly rabbinic um in the Pauline letters um I'd like to find it and uh, there are people who do find it but I myself don't find it well my I training mean, was we, we my, my training was more my training was more in the Greco-Roman Paul rather than the Jewish Paul yeah and and I mean we could have a whole I mean I think it's no doubt he was Jewish and he mentions uh 
he does not get into the details, but as you know, he, he mentions his background and being zealous and everything. But I think what you're saying though is that being in being in Tarsus would have had a lot to do with knowing those rhetorical conventions. Is that fair to say? Well, yes, given that the normative, uh, as far as we know, around the Mediterranean Sea, you have mm -hmm. we know that there are rhetorical schools all around the Mediterranean Sea. If you were to look, were to look at George Kennedy's book, The Art of Art of Persuasion in Greece and the Art of Rhetoric in the Roman World, there's full documentation of that. Um, uh, so the normal sequence of education was grammar and then rhetoric, and then for some, philosophy. Okay. Uh, many people look at the, the the latter part of the first chapter of Romans, uh, in other words, 118 and following of Romans, and see uh, Stoic ideas in Romans. In other words, there's order in the universe, there's order in the cosmos, and because there's order in the cosmos, you should be able to figure out that there had to be somebody who did the ordering of it, namely a creator. Yeah. And that's what Paul argues in 118 following. That's very, very, um, that's very uh, closely allied with what some of the Roman Stoics would say. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, you could make, I think more broadly speaking, the whole New Testament and, and the early the early church and even before the day that they, the apostolic days, and then the days of the evangelists writing the gospels, you have logos for instance. So, so I think that, you know, the Greek patterns of thought were just so embedded. I think that, um, you know, I, I think it's interesting, but yeah, I'm unsurprised though, too. I mean, it's, it's just. Yeah. It's just and also if you read the famous, if you read the famous book by Martin Hengel, Judaism and Hellenism, and it's yeah. a two-volume book, and the second volume is just notes, references. And he shows aspect after aspect after aspect of Judaism having been Hellenized. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you follow Hengel, uh, and many, many New Testament scholars certainly do, uh, and you see how Hellenized Judaism was um, in the Hellenistic period, in the Second Temple period, um well i mean you know after after the death of alexander the great then it's not a real far uh you do not have to leap off a cliff right to get the idea that all would have been able to to get rhetorical instruction along with philosophical instruction um uh, in tarsus uh, it's not impossible that he could have gotten some of that instruction uh, in Jerusalem as well, if there is anything historical about Paul being a student in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I have an open mind on that, but uh, it's possible that he was. Uh, I mean, I, you know, maybe Luke didn't make it up. I mean, there's maybe there is really was a historical tradition that Paul actually did study Judaism in Jerusalem, with, of course, Gamaliel be the, being the famous liberal rabbi. Um, so it's possible, at least. And so what biblical scholars try to do is not merely say what is possible, but try to make a case for what is probable. Mm -hmm. 
Well, on that note, maybe. What's that? You know, that's what separates. That's what separates younger scholars from the older scholars, is that when you teach graduate students, you try to say, okay, yeah, I know it's possible, but show me why you think it's probable. Mm -hmm. Well, and on that note, maybe the next time we uh, get together, we can have a debate over the historicity of acts. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm not qualified to argue that but uh it's uh that that's that's a whole other fascinating topic uh in itself but um just looking at the time doc dr hughes we, we thank you for giving uh the past more than an hour from your time for the show and this is a good discussion and um i uh, hope our listeners enjoyed it and um again that's the book is the corinthian respondents redaction rhetoric and history i'll have an uh, link to it in the show notes as well as some of the other works that were referred to uh, in this episode. Thanks, Dr. Hughes, and uh, God bless.